All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Before we jump into this content, just wanted to say if you haven't had a chance to check out the free ebook at listenerscommentary.com, I encourage you to do that. I think it's a super helpful guide on really the two parts of Bible study, hearing the text well, understanding and listening to it well, as well as heeding the text. That is putting the text into practice in our life. The book is entitled Bible in Life, How to Hear and Heed the Bible. And so totally free on the website there at listenerscommentary.com. Not only does it have that information, but it's also got a couple pages of just resources to help your Bible study, online resources, few books I mentioned in there that will be helpful to you as well. So totally free, listenerscommentary.com. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. In context, Jesus and the disciples had tried to get away. The disciples had just returned from their ministry tours. Uh, They were tired. So the plan was to get away and get some rest. But crowds from the various towns along the Sea of Galilee saw them and saw where they were heading and actually ran there and met them so that when they got out of the boat, there was this massive crowd of people. Well, that culminated then in Jesus feeding the crowds, 5,000 men late in the day. Well, that's where we pick up. So the people have been fed. It's now late in the day. It's getting dark. And it's time to wrap up this day. And so verse 45 says, Immediately, Jesus had his disciples get into the boat. So they had sailed to the spot in the boat. The crowds had ran on land. So Jesus tells his disciples to get back into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself would dismiss the crowd. So you guys go ahead. You sail to Bethsaida. I'll dismiss the crowd. Send them away. And presumably at some point, he's going to catch up with him, seemingly in Bethsaida. It's just that's not quite what takes place. And here's the reality is we lack some exact knowledge of precisely where these events took place. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus mentions a town by the name of Bethsaida, but that town was east of the Jordan and it was actually in the district of Galanitis. Well, that would possibly be where we're talking about, but in some ways it doesn't totally make sense. Part of it is just being east of the Jordan River. In the springtime, when the Jordan River is flying high, how would these crowds have just gotten across the river to Bethsaida if that's where it was at? Maybe they were on the western side and Bethsaida was on the other side. Who knows? But um, the Apostle John in his gospel tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida, but he mentions Bethsaida in Galilee not in Galanitis. And so were there two Bethsaidas, right? Like, well, maybe. We're just not totally sure. So Bethsaida is actually a little bit of a mystery in the Gospels, and some scholars think there might have been two of them. Not only that, there's also some things about their chronology of this whole story and the way it's going to unfold in the verses that follow that's a little bit confusing. Uh, here's kind of the way it plays out. Jesus sends the disciples away and tells them to sail to Bethsaida. He's going to dismiss the crowds. Then, after he dismisses the crowds, he goes up on a mountain to pray. Well, the next thing we know is it's the middle of the night. Not just the middle of the night, the fourth watch of the night, which means 3 to 6 a.m. It's getting on towards morning, in other words. And he's been praying then for quite a while, and they're now sailing 
are they sailing to Bethsaida? Are they sailing from Bethsaida? Because when they land, they land at Gennesaret, which is south of Capernaum on the western side of the sea. And so there's just a little bit of confusion as to the chronology and the geography of this whole event and the way it unfolds. And what that means is there's more that goes on originally when this happened, which Mark has chosen not to tell us about. He didn't feel the need to tell us all the details of how this story unfolded. And that means you get all these questions from scholars as they're trying to sort it all out and all that. But there's just some details missing in the way Mark has told the story. He didn't feel the need to tell us everything. So Jesus tells the disciples, get in the boat, sail towards Bethsaida, wherever that is. Uh, he's going to dismiss the crowd. Now, verse 46 then, after saying goodbye to them, after dismissing the crowd, sending them on their way, telling them goodbye and all of that, Jesus left for the mountain to pray. And so he goes further up the hillside um, where he's going to be alone for a little bit so he can pray. Verse 47 continues and says, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on land. So the crowd is gone. They're sailing wherever it is they're sailing to. Jesus is up on land. Now, verse 48 then seems like fast forward moment. All of a sudden now we're to the fourth watch of the night. Not just evening, we're at the fourth watch of the night by the time we get to verse 48. Here's what it says. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. Whoa, this is crazy. So as I noted, somehow we've moved from evening to the fourth watch of the night. And the fourth watch of the night is 3 to 6 a.m. In Matthew's version of this story, Matthew 14, 25, he tells us that this was shortly before dawn. And so we're actually cl moving closer towards the 6 a.m. mark than we are the 3 a.m. mark. And so it's beginning to get light outside um, and in view of the difficulties I mentioned above about the geography and the chronology, here's what it seems like to me that Mark has left out of the story for us. It seems like, though we don't know for sure, uh, like the disciples were uh, to sail to Bethsaida, and maybe they thought Jesus was going to meet them there. Uh, Jesus is up on the mountain praying, and he actually spends most of the night praying. So the disciples end up sleeping in Bethsaida. They get up early, know Jesus, and maybe they figure we should sail back to Capernaum, and maybe we'll meet Jesus there. I don't know. We're just not told those details. But it seems like now they're back in the boat uh, at almost dawn, and they're heading presumably west because they're going to land at Gennesaret. But as they're sailing that direction, the wind is against them. So there's a, a breeze coming off of the Mediterranean and down into the Sea of Galilee. The wind is against them. That's the way it seems. Though Mark has left some of the details out and we just don't know exactly how all this unfolds. At any rate, it's now middle of the night, early morning, and Jesus can see them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. How he saw them, we're not told. Was it like something supernatural? Or is it just the fact that he's up on the hillside, which is probably more likely? And the whole nature of the Sea of Galilee, if you're up high, you can see from side to side. And so he can see them out in the sea and he says, oh man, they're struggling 
because there's a wind against them. And so they're rowing the boat and it's not going easily because the wind is against them. And so he comes to them, notice, walking on the sea. And so here is Jesus wave walking, walking on the Sea of Galilee. And it says he intended to pass them by. And that's crazy too. Like what? Like what What were you thinking? Why were you just going to walk right past them? I thought you were coming to help them. And we don't know for sure exactly what is being uh, referred to or gotten at by the phrase he intended to pass them by. But it is possible that this is this language intends to be an echo of Old Testament passages about God kind of appearing and showing himself to people by passing by them. For example, in Moses, with Moses in Exodus 33, when God passed by Moses and allows Moses to see his back, Exodus 33. Or Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, God has Elijah stand on the mountain and the text says, for Yahweh is about to pass by. And so that's why he has him stand on the mountain. So perhaps by passing by, Jesus intends to reveal his divine glory to them. We're not sure, but that's what the text says, that here comes Jesus walking on the water and he intends to pass by them. It's also important to note that in a Jewish worldview, a first century Jewish worldview, the waves, the sea is a place of chaos. It, it is actually like a portal, a gateway to the abyss. And, and the only one who can control the wind and the waves and the sea is Yahweh himself in their worldview. And we've already seen that here a couple chapters earlier when Jesus spoke and stilled the winds and the waves. Well, now here comes Jesus walking on the waves. And verse 49 says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So he comes walking on the waves. It's early morning, right? They all see him, and they immediately cry out in fear because they thought it was a ghost. And the word for ghost, phantasma in Greek, is only used here and in the parallel story in Matthew 14. The word refers to like a disembodied spirit or maybe like an apparition of some sort. So they think they're seeing some sort of apparition or disembodied spirit. Makes sense. And it's on the sea, the place of the chaos portal, the gateway to the abyss. And here it comes walking and they, they cry out in fear. How does Jesus respond? Well, the second half of verse 50 says, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage it is I, do not be afraid. And so Jesus immediately reassures them, and he does so by saying, it's me, it is I. And the wording there is the standard way of saying, it's me. It's, and that's the primary point, to reassure them that it's Jesus and it's not a ghost. It's not an apparition. But here's what's interesting. Uh, the phrase, ego I me, that is, it is I, it's me, um, that exact phrase is actually used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, for God's name in Exodus 3.14. When God introduces himself to Moses, he says in the Greek version, Ego I me, it is I, it is me. But that's his name, Yahweh. And so in this scene, with Jesus walking on the water, and in view of a Jewish theology that said the only one who can 
control the winds and the waves is Yahweh himself, it sure seems like they'd have to hear more than a simple, it's me. At least they would have to wonder, what in the world is going on? For example, Psalm chapter 77, verse 19, and Job 9, verse 8, describes God as the one who walks on the sea. And even the intertestamental book of Sirach says, God walked on the waves of the sea. That's uh, the wisdom of Ben Sirach, verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 5. And so, in this worldview, when God is the one who walks on the waves, and here comes someone walking on the waves, and then uses the phrase, ego I me, to refer to himself, what would you hear? And so, while the primary point may be, it's me, there clearly is an echo of Exodus 3.14 here uh, with regard to it's I, it's Yahweh. There's like an echo of that. It's not just Jesus saying, I'm God, but there clearly is in Mark's account an echo of that phrase. And so here comes Jesus walking on the water and he says to them to reassure them, it's me. And then verse 51, he got into the boat with them and once again, the wind immediately stopped. And so demonstrating not only his ability to walk on the waves, but his control over nature. And they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, this is an interesting way to finish this little episode here. No insight from the feeding of the 5,000. Like the feeding of the 5,000 was supposed to help them see who Jesus was, but they didn't see. They had gained no insight from that. Um, and Mark says it's because their hearts were hard, like the rest, like the people who were on the outside, who were struggling to get it, who had hard hearts, who had eyes that didn't see and ears that didn't hear. The disciples are struggling to see exactly who Jesus is. And they don't see because they have a heart problem. Now, what should they see? Well, it seems to me the feeding of the 5,000 combined with this incident one of the things we're supposed to see is that Jesus is more than a prophet, that Jesus is fulfilling some pretty remarkable Old Testament themes and Old Testament promises. In fact, in John's gospel, what follows immediately after this is the discussion of Jesus being the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. Mark is a little more subtle than that, but it really seems like this is the great le lesson that uh, the gospels want the us to see, that Jesus wanted the uh, original 12 to see, and that is that Jesus is more than just a great rabbi, that Jesus is more than just a great prophet, that there's something about him that goes beyond that, that in some way he is the ego I me, he is God himself. In fact, in Mark chapter 8 verses 14 through 21, after the parallel account, after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus warns the 12 about having eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear, like the unbelievers. And then that leads into the culminating story of Mark 1 through 8, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do they say that he is? What will they see? So that's where this is all going. We're building up to that climactic moment where Jesus is going to ask them, who do you say that I am? And the hope is that they're not going to have a hard heart any longer, that they're not going to have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. And so in this moment, there's a bit of concern for the 12. 
what's the state of their heart? What's the state of their eyes? What's the state of their ears? They're seeming to struggle to see what Jesus is wanting them to see. Now, the conclusion of this episode, then, in the next couple verses, is really just a summary of Jesus' ministry on the heels of this event. So let's pick up in verse 53, and it says, When they had crossed over, so they're in the boat, the winds stop, and they finish their voyage, wherever they're heading. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored at the shore. And so Gennesaret was the plain to the southwest of Capernaum. And so apparently this is the direction they're sailing. They're struggling to get there. Uh, And like we said, there's some struggles with the chronology and the geography of all this because we just don't have all the details either in our knowledge and in what Mark has told us. But this is where they land. They They land at this plain of Gennesaret and they moored at the shore. And verse 54, when they got out of the boat, immediately the people in the area recognized him and ran about that country and began carrying here and there on their pallets those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And so Jesus is going to continue his ministry, traveling through all the towns of Galilee, This is Mark's way of just transitioning to a general summary of that. And so people are uh, notifying people, Jesus is here, Jesus is in this town, Jesus is in this place, and they're bringing out their sick people on their pallets, that is on their mats or on some sort of little stretcher type thing, to wherever they hear Jesus at. And wherever he entered villages or cities or a countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were being healed. And so Jesus' ministry just continues to grow and expand. People are bringing their sick to him in all the different villages and towns out in the countryside. Jesus healing them. People are just wanting to touch the fringe of his garment, and they're being healed. And the fringe of his garment, the fringe of his cloak, likely refers to the seat seat, the tassels on the four corners of his garment. Jews would wear these tassels in keeping with Numbers 15, which uh, represented and reminded someone of being faithful to keep God's commands and faithful to God's covenant. And likely that's what we mean by this. By fringe, it means to those tassels, which would indicate here uh, that Jesus was a faithful Jewish male wearing these tassels as part of the Jewish custom. And the overall description here emphasizes Jesus' immense popularity and power. Jesus is incredibly popular. People are bringing their sick to him from all over the place, and Jesus has the power to heal them. And all of this, this general description at the end, this whole story of Jesus walking on the wind and the waves, and that whole story combined with the feeding of the 5,000s, you put all of that together, and what we have here is a portrayal of Jesus as somebody that we should be, we should be, as we read the story, if we imagine reading it for the first time, we should be asking, who is this? Who is this person? Uh, somehow he can, he can make food out of nothing, seemingly. Like he can take small amounts of food and feed thousands and thousands of people. He has the capacity to walk on the waves. Like, who is this one? And Mark is wanting us at this point, as we see these powerful actions of Jesus, he's wanting us to wonder that. He's wanting us to ask that. Because very shortly, Jesus himself 
is going to ask that question. And the, the reality is, is do we have ears to hear? Do we have eyes to see? Or like the disciples themselves who are seeing all this and experiencing all that, but they're struggling to get it. Are our hearts going to be hardened like their heart is hardened? Who is Jesus? And hopefully we realize that Jesus, while he looks like an ordinary human being, he dresses like an ordinary human being somehow, in some way, he must be more than that. He must be even more than just a great prophet. Somehow, he's doing the kinds of things that only God can do.